Hey, gang. Well, believe it or not, Pitchfork Economics got a million downloads, one million, which is really amazing. And I wanted to first thank all of the incredible guests we've had on the show and all of the support and feedback from our listeners. The whole thing has been super enjoyable. And again, thank you so much, everybody, for participating. Trade is a big issue these days in terms of the trade war that President Trump has sparked with China. We won't back down until China stops cheating our workers and stealing our jobs, and that's what's going to happen. We went from a trade war that was focused on an issue that actually did matter to workers to an issue that workers in the U.S. really have no stake in. We have to acknowledge that anything we do will have pluses and minuses, and that we have to robustly account for the minuses. Right. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. A pointed conversation about who gets what and why with one of America's most provocative capitalists. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. In our office, we spend a lot of time putting together uh, policy proposals, deep thinking on a number of issues. We haven't really done all that much on trade. That's right. We have have ducked trade. Coward. Cowards. (laughs) Cowards that we are. Because trade is super complicated. And... There are so many dimensions to it and so many pluses and minuses and so many winners and losers. It's at the heart of market economies. At the the very heart of it is trade in the marketplace, whether it's international or domestic. And there are non-economic dimensions to trade, like the interdependence between states, which may be economically disadvantageous, but may prevent a war, for instance. As you know, I I did a lot of work on trade when I worked full-time for my family business because it was a very international business. Um, All our suppliers were overseas. I spent a ton of time in Asia, China, these other places, um, structuring relationships and importing and exporting, all that stuff. And, um, you know, there was this joke that was told when I was in D.C. working with people um, in the trade business and in the commerce department that they all reported up to the state department. <laughs> that in fact, if the state department felt like a relationship was important, it didn't give a rip about what happened to the companies. National right. security trumped economic policy at all times. And be clear, when they say yeah. they don't, didn't give a rip about what happened to the companies, that also meant they didn't give a rip of what happened to the workers. Absolutely. And, and, or the communities the and, workers lived in. Exactly. And, you know, because... At the end of the day, national security felt more important than economic vitality of a neighborhood or whatever it is. And again, I just want to make clear, as far as I know, that was not an explicit plank of the government's policy platform or whatever it was actually with China. Yeah. That was always uh, openly stated that it was, you know. and, And here's the thing. That makes perfect sense. You know, like there are considerations unfortunately, that go beyond economic convenience or even vitality that may trump those things. And so trade is complicated. And so we have avoided taking positions on trade policy 
and getting deeply into yeah, the intricacies. Yeah, but, but not because we're cowards, Nick. It's because we're not really sure what to do. Yes. And, you know, I think our goal in, in this episode is to get people to understand a little bit more about both the theoretical and practical dynamics of trade, what the good parts of it are, how it benefits societies and economies, and also what the risks and the trade-offs are. And I think with trade, boy, you know, when you start to unpack it, it's all about trade-offs. That on the one hand, you'll get something good, and on the, on the other hand, there will be a, a harm to someone or something. And it is hard to sort it all out. We get to talk to a super awesome guy, one of the good economists. One of the good economists. <laughs> uh, Dean Baker, who's the senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. He's actually co-founder and has worked in so many domains for so long. Uh, he's the author of several books, uh, including his latest, Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. It uh, should be a really interesting conversation, mostly focused on trade. And uh, Dean was one of the the first economists to warn about the housing bubble prior oh, that's right. to the I forgot about that prior yeah, to the Great right. Recession. Yeah, he was on that before anyone was. Should have listened to him, I guess. Yeah, well, now, now you can listen to him now. On <laughs> exactly. Trade. I'm Dean Baker, senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, and I have a book rigged how globalization and the rules of the modern economy were structured to make the rich richer. You know, we wanted to talk to you a bit about trade. You've written on the topic, obviously. Trade is a big issue these days in terms of the trade war that President Trump has sparked with China. If you could just give us a, a little background on what's going on and your take on, on our trade policy these days. Yeah, it, it's a little hard to be too clear on what's going on just because, you know, a lot of this is secretive. And frankly, I think, as we know, uh, we can't count on President Trump to act in a consistent manner. But where this, at least to some extent, originated, I think were quite legitimate complaints that we have a very large trade deficit. A big part of that is China. And a big part of that story is China's management of its currency. And this is something that at least most economists now concede was a big issue in the last decade. The basic story was China deliberately kept down the value of its currency against the dollar and other major currencies. What that does is it makes their goods more competitive in, in international trade and, of course, our goods less competitive. And people dispute whether they're still managing their currency, but that was the historical story. We lost millions of manufacturing jobs in, in the last decade because of our trade deficit, and China, again, being the biggest culprit here. And Trump, actually, during his campaign, had run on this, making this a major point, running around the country, yelling about China being a world-class currency manipulator, and he was going to go after them on that. And ostensibly, that was the start of the trade war. He was going to address currency with China. Now, what's happened since then is currency has largely fallen from the picture, and we hear complaints about China, China's treatment of companies' intellectual property. So it's common for China, or it's alleged, and I don't doubt it to be largely true, that when Boeing, when General Electric, other major companies outsource jobs to China, that often it will be the case China requires them to get a domestic partner. And what that means is that Boeing or General Electric, whoever it might be, is going to end up having to transfer their technology to this Chinese company, who then in two, three, four years will be a competitor with them. And that issue has taken center stage in Trump's trade war, 
And the currency issue has largely fallen by the wayside. My reason for emphasizing that is workers arguably have a strong case that if, if China raises the value of their currency, U.S. goods become more competitive, likely means more manufacturing jobs in the U.S. On the other hand, workers have no interest in making it easy for Boeing and GE to outsource jobs to China and not have to worry about whatever intellectual property claims they have. So we went, at least ostensibly, from a trade war that was focused on an issue that actually did matter to workers in terms of jobs here, to an issue that workers in the U.S. really have no stake in. We have no reason, workers have no reason to care whether or not China is respecting Boeing's intellectual property. And actually, since it'll make it easier for them to outsource, they might be happier if China did not respect Boeing's intellectual property. Let's back up a tiny bit and dig deeper into the sort of the intellectual framework that made all of this globalization and trade possible. The notion that trade is always good and that in aggregate, everybody's better off the more that we trade. And certainly the lessons of globalization over the last 20 years, 30 years in the United States and in Europe is that there have been profound winners and losers and that the economic orthodoxy was largely wrong. Well, actually, I think not that I'm on generally to defend the economic orthodoxy, but I would actually say what we've seen has been largely a misrepresentation of the economic orthodoxy. So what the economic orthodoxy actually says is there will be winners and losers from trade. And the story goes, if you look at the textbooks, it's that, well, the winners win more than losers lose. So we could, in principle, uh, the winners could compensate the losers and everyone ends up better off. Now, whether that that statement is true or not, the fact is we've never in any serious way compensated the losers. I mean, you can look at trade adjustment programs and we spend one or 200 million, I don't even know the latest number, but somewhere around there, one or 200 million a year on those programs where if you say, okay, we really want to compensate all the steel workers that lost their jobs in Pennsylvania and Ohio and the auto workers in Michigan, you would be talking about hundreds of billions. You'd be talking about a thousand times as much and no one has ever seriously proposed that sort of compensation package. And, you know, it, it would be obviously politically a huge lift. And quite frankly, uh, you know, as a matter, how would you implement a program like that? Not to say it's impossible, but this is a really, really big program. Think of uh, a program like TANF, multiply it by 10 or 15. That's what you would be talking about. And that's just not on the political agenda. Yeah. I mean, you could, of course, do it by imposing some kind of three percent surtax and all trade you could do that i mean again the discussion on this has been very very sloppy even from the standpoint of orthodox economics so you know again the orthodox economics never says that there aren't losers it does say they're losers There's a very famous uh piece from the early 40s by uh paul samuelson and uh, wolfgang sculper i think it's like 41 that basically shows you know there are losers and i don't know anyone that's ever said that's wrong Usually what economists have supported the trade deals the last few decades have done is they've poo-pooed them. They go, oh, yeah, some people will lose a little bit. And you go, no. And, you know, we have now very good research that was done by some very, you know, mainstream economists, David Otter being the most prominent at MIT, that shows, look, millions of people lost their jobs. When they got jobs back, if they got jobs back, they almost invariably paid far, far less than the jobs that they lost. So we're not talking about, you know, a few hundred thousand workers getting a minor cut in pay. We're talking about millions of workers getting really big cuts in pay. 
And again, that was predictable. You know, I was, uh, I and other economists, uh, you know, were warning about that. And we were, of course, poo-pooed, but that was a predictable outcome. And unfortunately, no one took that seriously at the time. In a way, aren't trade and automation very similar in terms of their impact on the economy? They're both about increasing productivity and lowering costs, and they both have allegedly winners in the aggregate, but losers at the micro level? Well, there's similarities. I mean, what's interesting with automation, historically, now this has become less true in recent years, but historically, workers gain from automation. So historically, the classic story, this is often referred to as the Treaty of Detroit, that if General Motors productivity went up 3% a year, then workers in the auto industry saw their pay go up 3% a year. So they very directly shared in the gains of, uh, of productivity growth. That's become certainly less true over the last four decades. But if you have that sort of story where you basically have a built-in mechanism, you know, obviously unions played a really big role here. So they said, okay, we're happy. You know, you're going to have 2%, 3% productivity growth. That's wonderful. You're going to pay us 2% more or 3% more. And that way you can ensure that workers are sharing in the gains. But as unions have obviously, you know, uh, union memberships fallen sharply, the unions are still there, in many cases, much weaker. They're much less able to ensure that workers get their share of productivity growth. And there's a really interesting feedback loop, too, which is that the less upward pressure there is on wages, the less uh, incentive corporations have for investing in productivity-saving technologies. <laughs> exactly. So that uh, yeah. when workers are highly paid, then, of course, uh, companies have an incentive. How can we figure out more efficient ways to operate the workplace? And when they can get workers very cheaply, then they don't have much interest in doing that. That's right. For my own part, you know, I'm very conflicted over what our approach to China should be. In the interest of full disclosure, I spent a huge proportion of my younger years in the family business working in and around China. Spent a ton of time in Hong Kong and doing business in old, you know, in the old-fashioned home textiles industry and it was super clear even then how predatory the Chinese were in their approach to markets and they went way beyond manipulating currency. They manipulated the price of the raw materials that went into the inputs. They gave massive tax subsidies to companies for manufactured items versus shipping out raw materials, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it went on forever. Uh, so I'm super sympathetic to taking a harder line with those folks on trade. But you know, we are where we are, and we can't go backwards to the old times. So it doesn't seem like the current approach probably is the optimal approach. What are your thoughts about how to make this all work better? Well, you know, I raised the currency issue. I still think that's important. So I do think that would also be a very winnable goal in the sense that's very concrete. So we set a target with China. We want you to raise your currency by, say, 20% over the next three or four years. It's very concrete. And they've done this in the past. So I've had people tell me, oh, they'll never raise their currency. I go, well, they actually have done that a lot. So you better tell them that they'll never. So that seems very, very concrete. But we've gotten to this big issue over intellectual property. And I think this is an incredible morass from an overall economic perspective and certainly from the standpoint of most people in the United States. We're trying to enshrine U.S. type intellectual property rules, patents and copyrights to be as concrete as possible into the world economy and have these longer and stronger and the idea being, oh, all things, we have to make sure our intellectual property is protected. And I just look at you know, the basic story here, China's economy 
Measured in purchasing power parity, which I think most economists will say that's how you want to measure it, it's already 25% larger than our economy. In a decade, it's likely to be twice the size. They commit the same amount, same share of their GDP to, to research and development as we do, maybe even a little bit more. I mean, they're increasing it rapidly. They're going to have many, many great innovations in artificial intelligence, computer technology, um, pharmaceuticals, all sorts of areas. They're going to have many great innovations. I would like to see our trade policy, rather than focusing on locking down our technology, focusing on trying to get access to their technology. And it'd be very concrete. They're the world leaders in clean technology. Wouldn't it be great if we had open access to all their technology there? So rather than locking our, our knowledge, our technology down, why don't we focus on our, our trade negotiations and trying to ensure that all this technology, ours is available to them, theirs is available to ours. That would allow for the greatest progress, greatest benefits to humanity. I love to ask the benevolent dictator question. Uh, if you were setting our trade policy, what would you do? Well, certainly I put a priority on intellectual property going to this, going some process of, uh, of making it open. I think that would just have incredible impact. You know, just thinking in the case of prescription drugs, we're going to spend over $460 billion this year on prescription drugs. If you snapped your fingers and said everything's available as generics, probably be talking about spending $80 billion. The savings on the order $380 billion. It's a huge amount of money, but more importantly, all these people are facing the situation, oh, there's this drug, it costs $100,000, $150,000, we can't afford it, we can't get our insurance company to pay for it. That would disappear. These drugs would cost a few hundred, maybe $1,000. I mean, I understand for a low-income person, even that's a burden. But the point is, for the vast majority of people, that's affordable. And even for low-income people, we could find easy enough ways to cover that tab. So I would make that front and center. I would also point out, you know, one of the things that people often say when they talk about the hit that manufacturing workers have taken, they say, well, the problem is, it's just that we have all these people in, in the developing world, China and other countries, they could do the same work for much less money. And what I like to point out, that's true. But guess what? They have a lot of really smart, ambitious people who would be happy to work as doctors, as lawyers, as other professionals in the United States. And they also would be willing to do it for much less money. How about we open up those professions, make it easier for people from other countries to train to our standards, and then compete with our most highly paid professionals? Few people like that idea. But if we want to be free traders, let's do that. I originally used to say that as a joke. I don't take that as a joke anymore. I think that would actually be very good policy. So we basically structured our trade policy to put downward pressure on the wages of less educated workers. And when I say less educated, I always use that advisedly because that's about you know, 65% of the workforce that doesn't have a college degree. Hmm. Interesting. So what do you think about tariffs and this shit show that is unfolding today? You can use tariffs in a way that makes sense. So if you had very well-defined goals... You could say, look, and, you know, and other presidents have done this. President Obama did it, and President Bush had done it. I believe Clinton did as well. I mean, it's not unusual for a president to have a particular complaint against a country, say, look, we don't like your practices in this sector. We want you to change them. They're very specific, and we're going to impose a 10% tariff or 20% tariff, whatever it might be, until you change that practice. And usually you end up negotiating. The tariffs are, are not imposed for long. Sometimes they're never even imposed at all because they sit down and talk and they work it out and they, they get a deal on it. The problem with what Trump's doing, at least from my vantage point, is he's being incredibly haphazard. I, I joke about it, and I think it's apt that he's running it as a reality TV game show. And that's not a way to run the economy. So what specifically are his demands? What does he expect China to do? 
that seems to change day to day. And what that means is we get these tariffs that they're imposed, then he says he's putting them off, then he imposes them. That's a very, very bad way to run an economy because be very concrete. If you're thinking of setting up a manufacturing operation in Iowa or Michigan, wherever it might be, you want to know that you're going to have markets. If they might retaliate against you, you don't know that. You want to know what your input prices are going to be. So you're getting some things from the U.S., you're getting some things from China. You don't know what those prices will be. As a result of that, you're getting a lot of companies putting off investment, and that's very, very clear in the data. And the obvious reason for it is this is not a good environment for firms to be able to plan long-term investment. In some ways, it's even worse for, for farmers. I mean, Washington State, big on uh, agricultural exports, apples and cherries. Those trees have to be planted years in advance on the expectation that there is a growing market in China, and then suddenly China cuts off imports in retaliation. Yeah, China's been very clever about this in the sense that they've been selecting targets where they think it will impose maximum damage. I mean, obviously, those who are suffering it don't like the maximum damage, but they're saying, okay, you're going to hit us with these tariffs. What can we do that will hurt you? So they'll say, okay, we're going to cut back our import of cherries from, from Washington State or from the United States in general. And they know. I mean, they're sitting there. They're figured out what will impose the maximum damage. And they, they've done a good job of that, you know, given that that's their goal. Our final question we like to ask our guests, why do you do the work you do? That's a great question. I want to be an economist because I thought I could have a positive impact on the world. I saw a lot of bad things happening, and I felt that learning economics and having an impact on economic policy was a way to make those things better. And I don't think that was a mistake. I mean, you always look back, uh, not that I'm at the end of my career, but I'm 61 now. Go, could I have done things differently? Could I have done things better? Sure. But I could point to a lot of areas. One area I've done a lot of work is Social Security, preserving Social Security. And I think I played a very, very big role in ensuring that Social Security was not cut back and privatized in, in, uh, under President Clinton or President Bush. So it's really, uh, you know, to my view, about trying to make the world a better place. And again, maybe I could have done things differently, could have done them better, but I think I, I have had a positive impact. Well, Dee, thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been really, really great. And, uh, sure. Thanks a lot for having me. I enjoyed the discussion. Yeah. Okay. And uh, good, good finally meeting you. I think we, I we probably have uh, thousands of people in common. I, I don't know. think we've ever talked before. We'll talk soon. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Okay. Bye. One of the things that Dean drove home was, uh, in his words, how incredibly haphazard Trump's trade policy has been. What with uh, first he imposes a tariff, uh, then he says he's putting it off, then suddenly it's on again. Just last Friday, there was big news from Trump that they struck a trade deal with China and the stock market goes up. And then today we find out that no, actually, it's not really a trade deal. <laughs> They're just delaying some yes. tariff hikes again. Haphazard is the kindest <laughs> and gentlest word uh, you could have chosen right. to describe and, Trump's approach uh, to trade. Yeah, crazy, <laughs> uh, sociopathic. Yeah. Uh, um, stupid. Stupid, right. <laughs> and, and, and of course, as Dean pointed out, it, this is just a terrible way to run an economy because you know as a businessman you need to plan and if you don't know what your tariffs are going to be right. how could you have done that with your family business that's right and you know, of course again the shame of it is that being mad at china for how mercenary their trade approach to us has been 
is completely valid. I'm completely with people who feel like we should hold China to a higher standard, push back against their currency manipulation and their straightforward attempt to steal all of our jobs and take them there. But there are so many intelligent ways that you could approach this problem that would generate more good than harm. Unfortunately, we definitely have the wrong man in charge. And of course, a lot of the impacts of Trump's trade war being felt here in Seattle, uh, a very uh, trade-dependent city and state. And so to learn a little more, uh, we sent one of our producers over to talk with Seattle Port Commissioner Ryan Calkins. Uh, yeah, uh, on the front lines of what's actually happening in trade. My name is Ryan Calkins, and I'm a commissioner at the Port of Seattle. So the Port of Seattle is a, it's technically a special purpose government, which was established in 1911 when the waterfront of Seattle was effectively privatized. Railroads and some agricultural, big agricultural interests own almost every foot of the waterfront. And so a coalition got together of progressives and farmers who couldn't get their goods to market and established something in the state that allowed for jurisdictions to create port authorities. In the case of the Port of Seattle, we grew from a seaport to also include the airport, SeaTac International Airport. And so, you know, our balance sheet includes a huge airport, the eighth busiest in the country. We're part of the fourth largest container cargo gateway, the Northwest Seaport Alliance, which is the Port of Seattle and Tacoma. And we also have an economic development division where we, through real estate and other mechanisms, help also to increase the overall size of the regional economy. And at root, what we're trying to do is create livelihoods for people who live in our area. We move about 4 million what we call TEUs, which is roughly to say 20 equivalent unit containers. Those boxes you see on the back of semi-trucks. We move about 4 million of those a year, imports and exports. And it's really important that we have that balance between the two because if we don't have a box coming in, we don't have anything to... We don't have a box to put our goods in and, and export. We're lucky in that we're fairly balanced. We bring a lot of goods in from Asia uh, that are for consumers here in the Pacific Northwest, but also for inland areas like Chicago and the Twin Cities and Kansas City. So we're effectively the port of a lot of Midwest cities as well. And for Washington State, which is a big agricultural state, uh, we do a lot of exporting of grains and fruits and other things as well through both the seaport and the airport. So of the three areas we really focus on, maritime aviation and, and more broadly economic development, maritime itself accounts for 60,000 direct jobs around the Seattle waterfront. And these are, on average, high five-figure incomes, oftentimes union-represented jobs. Uh, and that they range from longshore workers, who are the workers that pull the goods off the ships and put them onto trains to send into the Midwest to naval architects who are designing the next generation of fleets to, of course, the, the fishers who go up to Alaska each season and thankfully very sustainably harvest the fish stock. So there are a whole range of jobs associated with the waterfront. We estimate around 60,000. And then, of course, the airport represents 20,000 direct jobs. But for the most part, there are uh, employees of the 350 businesses that are represented at SeaTac Airport. We really focus on, uh, in our relationships with the, with the businesses at the airport and along the waterfront, we focus on ensuring that they are quality jobs, that 
one job is enough for the people who come to, to the airport or the seaport to work. I'm a big booster of trade because I do believe that when we look at the history of trade uh, around the world, it is arguably the single greatest mechanism for poverty alleviation that human history has ever known. And I think that's simply because when you connect larger networks of people who can trade, we can specialize better and we can be more efficient in how we produce goods and how we transfer them. This is not to say that there aren't downsides to trade as well. And in fact, my first job out of college was working for an organization in Latin America that was advocating for fair trade at a time when there was a big push for through NAFTA and other trade arrangements in Latin America. Uh, there was a big push for free trade. And essentially what the, the negative externalities of trade come down to labor disruptions and environmental problems. And so I would say that trade, while by and large a good, uh, is something that needs to be well-regulated to ensure that uh, we minimize environmental consequences and also take care of the workers who would be displaced by trade. There are definitely winners and losers in trade. Uh, as new markets open, it means that firms that have not been very efficient in the production of goods or services will be outcompeted by firms in the new markets that can provide those goods and services more cheaply. I'm less concerned about what happens to companies that are that fall victim to trade. What I'm much more concerned about are the employees of those companies, and in particular, in industries in which the options for new work are limited or require significant new training. And I think that has to be the focus of policymakers like myself, is what are we doing to ensure that the benefits of trade also come with solutions for helping those who have been displaced by trade. Trump's tariffs have been an unqualified negative for the Port of Seattle, for the state of Washington, I think for uh, people in the United States generally. The first off is you need to understand that tariffs are taxes. They're just a tax that's that's levied on the consumer of the goods that are being that the tariffs are are on and. The reason that's the case is because the producers aren't absorbing the tariff. They don't pay the tariff. They're not absorbing the tariff. That tariff is collected at the water's edge, essentially. And I spent a lot of time looking into what happens with those tariff dollars. They go into the, the general treasury, meaning it's not as if they immediately then go into assistance programs for the people who are negatively impacted by tariffs. And as a result, it's it means that the goods and services that people rely on that are being imported are now more expensive than before. And it's also creating all sorts of distortionary effects in the real economy. I read just the other day about how there are a number of opportunistic companies being set up on the Canadian border where they break down Chinese goods into smaller increments that fly below the radar and then shipping them over the land border with the United States because the tariff rates have gotten so high when you direct import from China to the United States. It's that kind of distortionary impact that is endangering jobs at the Port of Seattle and other ports in the United States, uh, but is also just adding friction to an economic system that would otherwise be much more productive and and result in cheaper goods for, for consumers. We're also seeing on the export side, I think in many ways through, through Washington State, a much more profound impact. We export a huge amount of soy and other grains uh, through Port of Seattle terminals. And the tariffs, the counter tariffs that China levied on our products bound for China were such that the 
soybean export dropped by 60% in 2018. And those are farmers in the Midwest and workers at the Port of Seattle that are now out of work because of, of those counter tariffs that resulted from Trump's trade war. So I, I like to introduce that concept of the elephant graph, where uh, when you look at the history of trade and, and what it has meant for various sectors of the population, it, you can sort of imagine the back of an elephant in profile all the way up as you move to the right over its head, and then a big drop off down to where the trunk rises back up so that there's kind of a dip where the forehead of the elephant is. And that graph describes what has happened to various segments, you know, from the poor on the left all the way over to the very rich, which represent the the high end of that trunk on the right-hand side. And that dip where the head meets the trunk represents the developed world's lower and middle classes. These were people who, relative to the global economy, have been doing well for quite a while. But as a result of the broad opening of global trade, that particular group was really impacted negatively, while virtually everyone else saw their incomes rise significantly. And that's a very important segment of our economy here in the developed world. It's, it's our lower middle classes. Um, you know, it was my family and lots of people who I grew up with. We certainly experienced that. And they are the folks who are displaced by the global economy. And if we don't think about how to ensure that those people also benefit from growing GDP per capita all around the world, they will be an incredibly disruptive group within the overall economy. When Nick talks about the pitchforks are coming, they will be the standard, but they will be the one carrying the pitchfork. They, they know what it's like to have a middle-class lifestyle where you don't have to worry about the paycheck, where you don't have to worry about where your health care will come from. And that's being taken away from them. And that's deeply problematic. And if we don't address that, then I think we really will see revolution. So you and I know that uh, Seattle is a very trade-dependent city. It's interesting hearing from Ryan uh, what this really means for workers here. 80,000 people are employed directly at the just in the maritime industry at the Port of Seattle, and those are mostly, as he said, high five-figure jobs. These are decent, dignified, middle-class wages Uh, for people who don't necessarily have a college degree. And then you get to the airport where there's another 20,000 direct hires, and this is just direct hires. Mm -hmm. And those are predominantly people of color, women of color. Those are low-wage work. But they're making a lot higher wages today than they did uh, five, six years ago because of yeah. what, Nick? Yeah, the $15 minimum wage where we started in SeaTac. That's right. We, That's we right. like to talk about Seattle being first, but actually SeaTac was the... Was the test case. And the one thing we haven't mentioned is like the, the textbook phrase... Comparative advantage. Comparative advantage, (laughs) right. So uh, if you're learning Econ 101, you go all the way back to uh, the 18th century and uh, David Ricardo and his concept of the, in classical economics, comparative advantage, which is that nations should focus on the industries that they have this relative advantage in, not an absolute advantage. His example was Portugal and England, that Portugal had an absolute advantage in making both wine and cloth. But 
England had a relative advantage internally of making cloth over wine. So if the Portuguese focused on creating wine and the British focused on making cloth and then they traded, uh, they would both be better off. Yes. Better off as nations. Yes. Right. Because comparative advantage, as it's taught in school, where you hear that everybody wins from trade, they're talking about trade between nations. But it, as we've learned throughout this podcast, that totally ignores the individual winners and losers within, yeah, within each, nations. Within Correct. each nation. Correct. And um, the prosperity of a society really is linked not so much to how and what you trade, but what you have the capacity to make. Right. And Right. You can't trade if you don't have something to trade. Exactly. And what's important about that thought is that your capacity to make things is inextricably intertwined with your capacity to make adjacent things. Right. That you can't make rope unless you can make string. <laughs> and you can't make string unless you have access to fiber and so on and so right. forth. And when you actually look at real modern market economies, the measure of a healthy economy and the best predictor of economic growth by any measure is the complexity and diversity Correct. of the economy. And if you specialize only on the things that you are best at as comparative advantage tells you you should, and by the way, as economists have told yeah. developing countries right. to do, then you end up with an economy that's relatively simple and not complex and diverse. And that diversity is important for a number of reasons. One, just like in the biological world, uh, economic diversity makes you more robust. So if things change, if one industry goes a little down, well, you still have other industries to back you up. And the other is that notion you talked about of adjacent product space, that right. you don't create whole new industries overnight, yes. you tend to move into adjacent opportunities. That's so right. if you grow peanuts, maybe you're going to now uh, go a little higher value and your country will export peanut butter. You'll process it there. If you're doing peanut butter, well, now you're going to process it a little further and you're going to specialize in higher value peanut oil. And if you're doing peanut oil, you can do other oils and maybe you'll get into refining petroleum yeah. and start exporting that. And bit by bit, piece by piece, you start to expand your technologies, your the available knowledge and know-how, the breadth of your industries, and invent whole new product categories. And that's where prosperity really comes from right. in the long term. And so some countries, governments, have worked assiduously to increase the diversity of their economies right. and to defend relatively weaker parts that may not, on a standalone basis, make any well, sense. Well, the U.S. did that under, that was part of Hamilton's vision for the U.S. We were essentially Britain's China yeah. uh, by the end of the 19th century. We were exporting all of our products into But today the Germany does a great job of right. defending industries not because they stand on their own necessarily, but because other industries depend on them. Right. <laughs> and the textiles industry may not make any sense uh, to weave cotton anymore, but it may make a huge amount of sense to weave graphite <laughs> or Kevlar or a whole bunch of other things that you can't do if you've lost the ability to weave. If Trump were to uh, cut off our ability to trade with China. The truth is, 
that the United States, for instance, could not probably make iPhones here anymore because we have essentially eviscerated all of the industries that made doing that possible and let them go to China. And was it efficient in the near term? Maybe, but it may be very harmful in the long term. And so, you know, an economy that is diverse and complex will always in the long term outcompete an economy which is sort of very right. narrowly focused. Because all of the value or most of the value is in the complexity. Yes. There's a lot more value in exporting steel than in iron ore. There's a lot more value in exporting specialty metal products than there is in raw steel. So the question is, how do we balance those short-term efficiencies that you get from unbridled free trade with the long-term necessity to maintain a diverse and complex economy? I have no idea. No. Yeah, that's, that, no. <laughs> this is the problem. Well, is that, that, it's complicated. That, there's, and, that's something that you and I have in common. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's complicated. We have to acknowledge that anything we do will have pluses and minuses, and that we have to robustly account for the minuses. Right. Compensate. Yes. The winners need to compensate the, the losers because the, yeah. the losers are not losers because of something they did wrong, yeah. Yeah. but because it's, you know, accidents yeah. of history, bad timing, bad luck, Context. et cetera. Yeah. Right. right. It's not your fault if your employer decides to export manufacturing to Mexico or yeah. China That's right. or wherever. Yeah, for sure. And in the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to be talking to the author Naomi Klein uh, about her new book, On Fire, uh, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.